Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. On October 5, 1998, Margaret Mary Ray, 46, ran onto the railroad tracks of the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad in a green valley in western Colorado, assumed a kneeling position, and within seconds was struck by an oncoming train. Her death was reported two days later in the New York Times. Ray suffered from a serious delusion. She believed she and late-night comedian and talk show host David Letterman had an intimate connection. Sometimes she insisted that she was his wife. She was arrested on numerous occasions and confined to a jail cell or a wing in a psychiatric hospital. Letterman said that he had great compassion for her, often declining to press criminal charges against her. I wasn't comfortable with the humanity of that, he said. Upon the news of her death, Letterman offered a sympathetic response to what he called the sad end of a confused life. We began our reading from the Passion Story from all four Gospels this year with the events surrounding the Lord's Supper. Jesus and his disciples had gathered to celebrate the Passover feast together for what would turn out to be the last time. Jesus knew it, but his disciples still didn't understand. In spite of previous conversations, they still believed that Jesus, who they had confessed to be the Son of God just a week before, had come to usher in a new kingdom. And he had, but they never realized he wouldn't be around to see it come to fulfillment. The Passover meal was a celebration of God's goodness to his ancient people when he freed them from bondage in Egypt 1,500 years earlier. But this night the celebration was muted following the dismissal of Judas, who would leave to betray Jesus. And then there were the words of our Lord himself when he suddenly spoke to them, You will all fall away. And he quoted Zechariah 13.7, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That'll put a damper on your celebration. The gospel doesn't mention what the disciples must have been thinking. We can imagine that the room went silent, dead quiet, until Peter breaks the silence with an astonishing promise, even though they all fall away, I will not. What do you think happened after that? The text says Jesus answered, but it doesn't exactly say when. Do you suppose he offered a pregnant pause for the other disciples to fill with their thoughts on that? Not on what Jesus said, as much as what Peter had said. Did they think it may have made them look bad? Had they seen it as Peter one-upping them? Was there some resentment? Maybe they knew him well enough after having been together for three and a half years, they thought he was delusional. He definitely had a habit of speaking before thinking something through first. I hope you and I would have been confident enough to have said the same, and they'll get their chance to chime in shortly. But maybe in that moment of silence, they realized they were only human, and it wouldn't be the first time any of them had disappointed Jesus, just like any of us. So Jesus speaks up. To Peter, he says, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Do you think some of them chuckled at that, seeing Jesus put Peter in his place? I don't think so. It was way too serious an occasion while I imagine Jesus did have a sense of humor, he wasn't being funny right now, and that got their attention. Peter won't let it go. Clearly not delusional, he's emphatic. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And listen to what it says next. And they all said the same. Not delusional, dedicated. How could they make such a bold profession? 
Clearly, they didn't know themselves well enough. Maybe they didn't recognize the weakness of their humanity. What was in the eyes of the apostles as they watched Jesus predict their falling away from him? A look of horror, I'll bet, when they realized how deadly serious he was. A look of disbelief as they processed what he was saying and the wheels began to churn, working to come up with the defense. Their ears didn't want to hear the truth. Their eyes didn't really want to see Jesus as he predicted their fall. He didn't make mistakes. He always told the truth, and he was never wrong. They didn't see him as he was, true God and true man, because they were blinded by their own delusions of denial. They wanted to believe that they could somehow, on their own and from within, find the strength to face and defeat whatever might come, even something as horrifying as deserted their Lord. They didn't realize who they would come up against in the darkness. They were lying to themselves as they were denying what they were hearing. They were focused on their own perceptions and plans. They had their minds on the things of men rather than on the things of God. So with Judas gone and Peter on his own page, the other ten apostles would go on that very night to deny Jesus by falling away when he's arrested in the garden, in spite of their promises to the contrary. And they all left him and fled, the Bible says. Peter had gone to deny even knowing Jesus three different times as he watched him being examined before the high priest. Peter wasn't inside with the Lord. He was watching from the outside courtyard where he thought it was safe. When he was recognized first by a little servant girl, no threat to him at all, and then to other bystanders, Peter fell away. When Jesus quoted the prophecy of Zechariah, he actually added a couple of words that are very telling. He said, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. It's a quote from God himself. Awake, O sword, against the shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. That's the text from Zechariah. Who is the man who stands next to Yahweh? Jesus. He's the one against whom the Father bids the sword to awaken. I will strike the shepherd, says the Father. It's like we heard a couple of weeks ago that the one who ultimately handed Jesus over wasn't Judas, but the Father himself. Or as we heard last week, it was the Father's will to crush the Messiah so the masses would be accounted righteous in the Father's sight. It's exactly as Isaiah foretold. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him not, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. I will strike the shepherd, said the Father, and Jesus was stricken with all of that for you. But it doesn't end here. With the disciples abandoning the Lord in his hour of trial, and Peter hanging his shameful head in the courtyard of the high priest, our Lord will go to the cross abandoned and alone. It would be a sad story if this is how the story ended, but there's more. There's the good news, the gospel. There's always good news when we involve our loving God. Jesus did tell them that night that they would all fall away, and they might have tuned him out right there in that moment of shock and awe. But then he added, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. His words about falling away in denial all came true. But even more than that, so did his prediction of the resurrection. 
and his post-resurrection appearances to the apostles and others. To these denying and doubting apostles, Jesus would entrust the teaching and baptizing that would go out to all nations and turn deniers of God into confessors of God, into followers of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what about Peter, who had fallen in such a spectacular fashion, who had denied that he even knew Jesus? Keep in mind that out of all the disciples, Peter alone was in that courtyard as Jesus was being tried. He's the only one with the courage to get anywhere close to the Lord that night. We'd like to think that if we'd been in his sandals, it would have gone differently. But how many times have we stood by silently when someone spoke words that contradicted what we knew to be God's word? Jesus' word. How many opportunities have we had to share the gospel good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, for fear of giving offense, or being ostracized and excluded? Are we so different? And we can't forget to recognize in Peter an example to follow in the way he expressed his sorrow and contrition over what he'd done. Luke's telling of this story adds that immediately after Peter denied knowing Jesus the third time and the rooster crowed, just as Jesus had foretold, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered what he'd said. And the apostle went out and wept bitterly. That's some high drama. We don't think about it happening to us because we're not standing face to face with Jesus yet. But we shouldn't think for a moment that when we deny our Lord by thought, word or deed, that he isn't looking at us. Peter's godly sorrow led to the Lord's absolution after the resurrection. He was restored by Jesus from being a denier to being a confessor. At the Sea of Galilee, Jesus showed up for breakfast on the beach with some of the disciples, Peter included. He gave Peter a threefold admonition to feed his sheep, negating Peter's threefold denial, and then, follow me, Jesus told him. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Through your baptism into Christ, you've been given a gift greater than the whole world. You have lost your life in this world for the sake of Christ and have now found your new life in him and his kingdom where you're saved from sin, death, and hell. You now look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. You live in the big picture now, the one that takes comfort in some things of God you can't yet see, plans of God you don't yet understand. You're bound to run into people these days who are asking, where is God in all this? I'm watching my retirement fund shrink. I'm seeing neighbors worried sick about getting sick. And I'm seeing much of the nation and certainly much of the world on at least a partial lockdown. What's God doing about it? Well, in the first place, God doesn't send viral outbreaks and pestilence on the world. No one knows yet where this coronavirus came from, but it didn't come from heaven. We live in a fallen world where this kind of stuff happens. Last week, we heard about Moses' people complaining to God about food and water in their wilderness wanderings, not coming on their schedule when they should have been thanking God for the blessings of freeing them from slavery in Egypt or for sustaining them in the wilderness and for the blessings he would show them in the future. All God wanted for them was to turn back to him. 
Even Jesus' disciples didn't see God's hand at work in the Lord's passion story, in his suffering and dying, in spite of all the times he told them it was coming and all the ancient prophecies about it, not until their eyes were opened to the scriptures after his resurrection. They never would have dreamed that the Father would be behind his own son's suffering until they understood it was for their own good and their own salvation. God shows his love for us in this, Paul wrote that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has always been able to bring good from our disastrous times. We don't know yet how bad this outbreak will affect our country or even our county, but it's bringing politicians together in a bipartisan way in an election year, the likes of which has rarely been seen outside of war times. It's brought healthcare professionals and researchers together from around the world to seek a cure. It will make us better prepared than ever for whatever comes next. God will bring good from it. Remember how Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because they were jealous of what they believed to be their father's favoritism. By the end of the story, Joseph had risen, through God's intervention, from a prisoner and a slave to a position of power in Egypt that enabled him to save his people from a severe drought. And when his brothers came to him, begging forgiveness but knowing they deserved death, Remember what he told them? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. All the disciples could see was tragedy from the time of Jesus' arrest until he suffered and died on the cross, bookended by criminals on Good Friday. Purposeless tragedy and disillusionment but they'd been deluded by their own denying eyes. And with the exception of Judas, they lived to see a greater good than they could ever have imagined. Because God is good, all the time. There's just no denying it. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.